Hello and welcome to the first episode of High Strangeness. My name is Clark. I will be your host and fellow traveler into the world of the paranormal, conspiracy, and of course, High Strangeness. I have been fascinated by the paranormal all my life, and only a little more recently have I developed an interest in the world of the more tangible conspiracy. Um, in this show, you will hear my take on everything from Bigfoot and the ever-mysterious Flatwood Monster to the conspiracy surrounding Bohemian Grove and the international pedophile ring that is deeply embedded in the entertainment industry and our very own federal government. Um, the answer to the question you might be asking yourself is no, I am not fun at parties as people find me to be uh, abrasive and off-putting and say things like, you smoke too much weed, or uh, you ruined my mother's funeral, and I want a divorce. Um, but I digress. While these topics may seem scary or upsetting and even ridiculous, it is important to keep an open mind about everything. Um, I guess the best uh, color and help the uh, the comment I just made about keeping an open mind, I'm going to finish my first introduction with a couple of quotes from two vastly different men, though they were both just adamant about finding the truth. Um, I don't believe they ever crossed paths, but um, they were boundless investigators in the search for that truth. Uh, the first is Bill Cooper, and he's he's the OG conspiracy theorist. Um, he was he was shaking the system and writing articles and books while Alex Jones was still crapping in his huggies, uh, not just from being like too drunk and drinking the disgusting protein shakes that he sells. Um, he wisely said, Bill Cooper wisely said, uh, "Listen to everyone, read everything, and believe nothing unless you can prove it." with your own research. Uh, and those are really powerful words coming from a man that was killed in a shootout with the police. The next comes from a man well ahead of his time, Dr. J. Allen Hynek. Uh, he is one of the world's most prolific ufologists. Um, once he was a consultant and a debunker for three different U.S. Air Force projects, including uh, Project Blue Book. Uh, he eventually became an astronomy professor at Northwestern University, but he investigated these sightings and abductions until his death at the age of 152. Um, I didn't really research Jalen Hynek that much, and he probably didn't die at 152, but I'll, uh, I'll let you guys know, or you could just Google him. Um, he would say the following concerning investigations into the UFO and abduction phenomenon. Uh, ridicule is not a part of the scientific method, and the public should not be taught that it is. And that, I mean, we really need a lot of that today. That's, that's really important to remember and to learn um, that we're all going through this together. You know, that, that, that's going to be my overall message through this. We're all going through this together. Uh, this, this is just life for everybody. You know, you may have more, you may have less, but always keep in mind that that ridicule isn't part of the scientific process, and it really isn't a part of life either. 
Uh, it's an extraneous thing that does nothing but really push us back. Um, and with that being said, uh, welcome again to High Strangeness. Now, you sit back, relax, take a nice big toke of that blunt, and a healthy sip of that bathtub gin. And let's get strange. On October 11th, 1973, not long after dusk in Pascagoula, Mississippi, Charles Hickson, 42, and Calvin Parker, 19, were fishing on the banks of the Pascagoula River across from a commercial shipyard. An exact time has never been specified, but it was dark enough for the two men to notice a blue light behind them. Thinking the authorities had arrived to ask them to move, they turned to see not a police cruiser, but a large brightly growing, uh, glowing craft descending from the sky. Charles describes the craft as being roughly 30 feet long, 10 feet tall, and shaped like a football with one end blunter than the other. Uh, there was a dome-like, uh, a dome-like structure on top as well. Um, the light appeared to be emanating directly from the surface or the skin of the object not glowing out of any kind of you know bulbs or anything like that. Um, initially, uh, the color was a, a whitish blue. Then it started to change pretty frequently. Um, Calvin suffered what is known as uh, welder's burn or welder's, uh, welder's glare. And uh, not welder's burn, welder's glare, where you, if you look at like the welding, the arc um, of a welding torch, it can actually like damage your eyes for a few days. Uh, actually cause permanent damage, I believe. Um, Hickson and uh, uh, Parker both say they initially heard a loud zipping sound. Um, like, like almost like a, a large zipper or fabric being torn. And, uh, but they, they didn't hear anything besides that. Once that noise went away, that was it. They, they stated there was no engine noise and uh, the craft itself was completely silent. Uh, at this point, the two men are in shock. They could not move. It, the craft hovers down to about a foot above the ground. Um, again, no mechanical noise. It's very, very close to them, maybe 20 yards away. Um, and... Then all of a sudden, they notice a large rectangular aperture, like a doorway, open at the rear of the craft, which they can only assume is the rear of the craft. Uh, again, this door open with no noticeable mechanical movement nor noise. Um, and out come three figures. Uh, they have appeared to float toward the men. Both Hickson and Parker described these things as being vaguely humanoid in shape with a head growing directly from the shoulders. There's no neck. Um, the only features on the heads were long, narrow cones protruding from the front and sides. One of the men would later describe the protrusions as carrot-like. Uh, the figures had long arms, too long in comparison with the rest of the bodies, and ending in large crab-like pinchers. Um, the legs were fused together, and... Uh, they terminated in a round stumped foot, similar to an elephant's foot. Uh, they also had thick, wrinkled gray skin that was also described as being elephant-like. Um, 
Charles and Calvin both admit to being in a state of near mortal terror. But when the beings floated to them, they grabbed the men with their pincers and injected them with something that paralyzed them and brought an immediate feeling of calm and comfort. Um, they, it, there was actually red marks on their arm from where they said they were grabbed by these things. Um, but we'll, we'll get to that later. There's, there's plenty to come. The beings uh, appeared to defy, defy gravity as they floated upward and into the craft with the men. Um, I believe Calvin had two and uh, Charles was being escorted by one. Uh, inside the vessel, the men are separated. Calvin is brought deeper into the ship while Charles is kept just inside. Uh, Charles claimed to have been examined by what he described as a large eye. For about 20 minutes um the beings were floating around him um and they they kind of remained at you know behind him uh while he was being examined he took the opportunity to get his bearings and look around uh he noticed that the glowing was uh, emanating from the interior walls as well as the outer surface of the ship and still the vessel environment was completely silent even the art large eye made no noise. Um, the beings themselves, after, as he's as he's looking at them, now he's he's claiming that his body is paralyzed. He can't move, but it's not like he's limp. He's just rigid. He's in he's in the position that he was in when when he saw the ship. Um, but his head, he's able to move his head around and look around him. He, he describes the beings that grabbed him as being robotic or possibly manufactured. Um, the eye he described as being mechanical, but like nothing he had ever experienced before. Um, nor could he fully comprehend it. And that's where something really common among UFO experiencers. They can't wrap their head around what's going on. Um, there's a lot of this, even from uh, um, one of the most famous encounters from Betty and Barney Hill. They, it was like their, their brain just couldn't wrap around the situation. They were seeing something and it wasn't, it wasn't, they just didn't know how to explain it to themselves. Uh, which has got to be a really terrifying experience, I think. Um, Calvin, meanwhile, is uh, brought back into uh, a hallway. That's just off of this main room. Um, it's a, uh, he's brought into a separate room. It's a brightly lit area and he's placed on a table on his back, uh, and suspended in the air at about a 15, 20 degree angle. Um, 15 to 20 degree angle. Um, though he initially claimed to have passed out and remembered nothing, Later, he would recount this statement, recant this statement, uh, saying that he didn't want the negative attention that would come from his retelling of his outlandish experience. Now, when he was on the table, the original beings moved aside and allowed what he described, and this is later in life, he describes this. He, he, he doesn't fully describe this until... Probably about 30 years later, uh, he finally kind of comes to terms with this. But we'll, we'll get to that in probably the next episode. Um, the, the original robotic-like beings move aside and allow what he describes as a female alien 
to examine him. Uh, she telepathically tells him he's in no danger. They mean him no harm and that, you know, everything will be fine. They, you know, this is to be a peaceful encounter. Um, she then starts to examine him. Uh, he, he's, he says he's, her mouth doesn't move at all during this and that she speaks directly into his mind. Then she starts to examine him, uh, moving her hands over his body and then using some sort of long wand-like instrument over his body. She doesn't actually use the wand to touch him, um, but she does actually physically touch him with her hands. And what it, she touches him in, in a way that he would later describe as, as assaultive. Um, to, to go into greater detail, the alien opened his mouth with uh, her, her very odd-shaped hands, long, slender fingers um, that appear from the movement that he describes to have been able to bend upward. Like the hand is facing, the palm is down, and the fingers bent upward. As he says, they go into his hand, into his uh, mouth, go down his throat slightly, and then up into his sinuses, his sinus cavity. Um, and then they, she pulls her hand out of his mouth. The whole time he's getting this sense of her also examining his, his thoughts and telling him, this is going to be all right. You're safe with us. Um, they, they, there's a little bit of missing time. Both men say about 20 minutes elapsed between um, initial sighting and the end of their experience. Uh, ev everything seems to be moving rather quickly, though 20 minutes inside of this craft seems like it would be a rather long time. Um, once this examination is finished... This this invasive kind of technique is performed on on Calvin. Uh, the robotic aliens or beings escort him back out to the main room through the hallway, take him and Calvin, and deposit them on the ground. Um, they the way they deposited them. So basically. Both men are still frozen in place and they bring them out hovering against gravity, put them back roughly in their original position, though this time Calvin's arms are straight out in front of him, kind of like the old mummy movies, you know, and they're still about a foot above the ground when something turns the gravity back on for them and they just drop to the ground. Um, I believe one of them falls and just kind of sits there in shock. Uh, I believe that was Calvin who, who fell and was just kind of sitting there. Uh, Charles goes up to him, makes sure he's okay. They're freaking out. The beings go back to the ship. The aperture closes. And with another zipping sound, this craft goes up into the sky and disappears from sight. Um, the zipping sound is really, really interesting. Um, a lot of ufologists now, very, very, uh, uh, highly credentialed people, 
uh, including uh, Jacques Vallée, uh, think that these are some sort of ultra terrestrial um, beings that we're that we're experiencing. Um, but now, I don't want to put the the cart in front of the horse here. We got plenty of stuff to talk about still, and that I'm sure that's going to come up in a later episode. Um, so the craft leaves the Charles goes up to Calvin and is kind of consoling him. I'm sure they did not where they weren't very uh, detailed about what, what they were feeling. You know, of, of course they, they were terrified. They were scared. Uh, Charles, I know comforts Calvin. Um, Charles is, a good deal older than Calvin and he's also a veteran of the Korean War, a highly decorated veteran. He was in five different combat um uh or he was in five different battles in Korea. Um he saw some shit. He he is used to the stress that happens and the, the from from trauma like this. He's never experienced anything like this, but he understands what's going on to his boy Calvin. And it seems like what he did to deal with, holy shit, I've been abducted by an alien, um, is he he pushes his own need for you know some kind of comfort or understanding aside in order to help Calvin, and that helps him get get shit going, because otherwise, if you have two people just freaking out, you're just gonna sit there and and freak out and not get anything accomplished, not move, you know, not, not get to a safe place. If, if that's what you need to do, you know, it's like that old joke. Um, you know, how do, uh, how do two goth kids change a light bulb? They don't, they just sit in the dark and cry about it, you know? So that's another thing I think that should be discussed. If you do experience something like this, you should report it, you know, don't be like the goth kids. Don't sit in the dark and cry about it. You know, take action on it. Um, these things do happen. I really believe that they do happen. And we need to get a network of information that is irrefutable. Something that's outside of the U.S. government. Something that's outside of, you know, organizations that constantly fight with each other like MUFON and you know, um, I, I think there are so many that uh, existed and don't exist anymore because of infighting. Um, and I think as a community, ufologists need to come together and get a, a strong, uh, an actual, real uh, coalition to figure out what's happening. Because we're not going to get any help from, from the government or from the corporations that are investigating this. Anyway, <laughs> sorry. Uh, after the encounter and the craft's departure, the men immediately agree not to speak of the events. Um, they sat in the field for a little while on the banks of the Pascagoula, and they collected themselves. You know, Charles is kind of getting Calvin to, like, breathe a little bit and calm down. Um, yeah, initially they wanted to keep silent about all this. Um, they got to Calvin's car and they noticed that the passenger side windows had all shattered. Um, and that was the side that was facing the UFO, the, uh, the encounter. Um, 
when Charles opened his side of the door, the glass just fell out. And, um, and you know, there's not really much they can do about it. They got into the car and uh, just kind of sat there. It took a little while for the car to get started. The uh, uh, There was something wrong with the electrical system. Uh, in that time, actually before they took off, Charles produced a bottle of Jim Beam from somewhere. And uh, they each, you know, kind of had a, had a drink to calm their nerves a little bit, um, which is t- completely understandable. And I think anybody that's ever had an alcoholic beverage before knows that, you know, even in the midst of a blackout drunk, it's not likely that you're going to hallucinate something like that. So this little drink and maybe one that follows afterward, that this is that's nothing to focus on in this kind of scenario. Um, after a few minutes, Calvin started the car and began to drive back to Gautier, where a nearby town that they were staying at with um, Charles uh, Charles Hickson's uh, family. Calvin was uh, was currently you know boarding with him uh, while they were working at this shipyard. Um, on the way there, they stop at the Mississippi Press Building. Uh, in an attempt to determine the time. Uh, unfortunately, there was no clock. I believe that Charles went inside looking for a phone because he needed to talk to somebody. He needed to tell somebody about this. They um, they both kind of go into this thing of like, oh my God, what if this was an invasion? Oh my God, what if they contaminated us with something? We need, like, we need help. We need to tell somebody about this. Um Calvin was was a little suspicious of that as well, but he, you know, because the last thing he knows is they agreed not to talk about it. So they get back in the car, or Charles gets back in the car, and they drive to a local tavern uh, simply called Tick, or T-I-K. Um, they go in, uh, Calvin has an, uh, a beer, I guess, he. I mean, he's really feeling it. You know, Charles seems to be handling this a lot better. He's compartmentalizing. He's like, okay, we got steps we got to complete to to get this, you know, something going on for this while Calvin is just sitting in it and stewing on it. Um, they they go in there, they, they sit, they talk about it a little bit, and they, I guess Charles convinces Calvin, I, we got to call the Air Force. Um, he even tells Calvin, like, listen, you just say that you were passed out. Say that you passed out and you don't remember anything. You know, he's like, I'm, I, I can't tell you them your experience. I'm, I'm going to tell them what I saw, but you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to push you. And that's eventually what Calvin does. Um, he, and I probably over the years, he just pushed it down and he just, got away from it. He really couldn't handle this. This was hard for him. So they leave the tick and uh, they start driving to a store with a payphone out front. Uh, Calvin or Charles calls the one entity you can definitely trust in a situation like this. And that's the government. Um, 
Look, it's not that I don't trust the government. It's just that I believe the federal government is run by selfish elitists and organizations and a loose affiliation to each other that want to devalue us as individuals and take control of our property and overall quality of life while at the same time crushing our spirit and making us docile and pliant slaves to grow their own personal wealth. Uh, that being said, the call to Kiesler was pretty immaterial. Um, the operator informed Charles that as of the termination of Project Blue Book in 1969, the U.S. government no longer acknowledges or investigates UFO sightings or encounters. Um, though that, that would actually not be true. They did it on a much more secret scale. Um, they just didn't tell the public about it because it was really hard to, you know, cover this stuff up when you're acknowledging it and the government's acknowledging it, then, you know, it's harder for them to say, no, there's nothing, it has nothing to do with us. We're, you know, you know, it's easier to, to defame somebody and make somebody look like they're crazy and hide, you know, the sneaky shit that you're doing. But uh, it been gaslit by the government for, you know, since the beginning. But, you know, like I said, it's not that I don't trust them. Um, yeah, so the, the, the government doesn't, doesn't investigate this stuff anymore. They were actually politely recommended. That, that was like their response. You know, every, every operator at every Air Force base, and they, were, they had called uh, Kiesler Air Force Base as the local... Uh, the, the closest Air Force base was uh, probably about an hour away in Biloxi, Mississippi, which I spent a little time there. I spent about a month there. Um, nice place. No, that's a lie. It's it's not a nice place. Um, I, that, I'm not going to lie about it. But it is only like an hour and a half away from New Orleans, which is a really cool place. I highly recommend it going there. Not Biloxi. New Orleans. Biloxi sucks. No offense, Mississippi. You guys, you guys are great, but you know, fucking Biloxi kind of sucks. Um, so their local law enforcement is the Jackson County Sheriff, who at that time was Fred Diamond. And I know Sheriff Diamond sounds like the antagonist in an old Burt Reynolds movie, like like one about like an illegal casino or like bootlegging or something. Um, but actually. He was extremely helpful and respectful to the situation, um, to the point where I like I'd have to I'd have to comment on most law enforcement agencies today, even now, would, they wouldn't have handled it with the similar seriousness uh, that that the encounter really deserves. I mean, they really they covered their grounds. They did a really great job, as you'll see. Um, so they call the sheriff's department. They're told to stay put. And within about uh, 10, 15 minutes, deputies arrive. They take a look at the car. They give Calvin and Charles a once over. Uh, they ask them if they've been drinking. Both men say, yeah, we, we had a drink. But, I mean, it was just to calm our nerves. But we were not drunk. Obvious, it was obvious they weren't drunk. Um, they go to the station. At the station, they're separated immediately. Um, very common uh, police tactic. Um, Calvin still insists that he passed out and didn't remember anything, but he knew that something incredible and terrifying had happened to them. Um, 
after going to over the events of the night uh, numerous times, the deputies uh, kind of they stopped the questioning and they put both Calvin and Charles into the same office together and they just leave him there. Um, they leave him there for a little while, uh, probably less than 20 minutes. And eventually one of the deputies comes back. They go into a desk drawer and they remove something that something would later turn out to be a tape recorder. They had been secretly tape recording these two guys the entire time they were alone. Um, and the tape was, you know, Sheriff, Sheriff Diamond was, you know, he was on the scene at this point and he was listening to the tape. And this tape would eventually uh, come to be called the secret tape and really remains one of the most compelling pieces of evidence of, uh, of abduction. And it would help prove the validity of this particular scenario. Um, so they brought, they brought them back and they started, they did an interview again with Calvin and Charles. Uh, the attitude of the situation changed from interrogation to just a simple conversation. Um, and they, they basically said like they were a lot nicer about it. They, it was like, they were kind of telling us like, look, we, we get it. We, we believe something happened to you. Um, we just don't know what to do about it. There's not much, what can we do? The, if you said the air force said to call us, I, you know, that's, <laughs> it seems like you guys were, were in some, it got into some, some trouble, but you know, we don't know how we can help you. Um, the end of all this, they're, they, they're told to go, um, try to, I guess, get some sleep and, you know, figure something out. Um, Calvin begged the sheriff and his deputies to not tell anyone. Uh, he was very, very upset about this and he did not want to be called crazy. He did not want to be called, you know, a liar and have a lot of attention put on him. And the, they agreed to keep quiet about things. They, you know, they had to fill out a police report about the car and, you know, the damage done to the vehicle and stuff like that. Though, again, what are they going to do about it? Um, unfortunately for Calvin, uh, one of those people involved would be pretty loose lipped about the whole ordeal. And really the next day it started, but in less than a week, these poor, simple shipyard workers, uh, would become the focus of believers, investigators, skeptics, and debunkers from all over the world. And actually, um, we see another, we see our, our, an appearance from uh, Dr. J. Allen Hynek in this scenario. Him and Dr. James Harder, another uh, ufologist, very famous ufologist, uh, come and they investigate the situation. They would put Charles and Calvin under hypnotic regressive uh, um, session. They kind of got more of a story out of Calvin at that point. It... I think it was pretty obvious that Calvin was hiding something. And I think that helped in this situation to make it that much more serious. He did not want attention. He made it very clear that he didn't want to talk. Charles did most of the talking. He would go on to be on a couple TV shows. He did the, um, the convention circuit for a long time. And 
you know, he, he's kind of a cool guy. Um, but that's, man, that, that's, that's the first show right there, guys. I, I'm really happy to do this. This was a lot of fun. Um, I don't want to go on much longer and get a, you know, do a little bit of editing. I'm, I'm thinking like, this is, this can end up being like a pretty long episode, I think. So I'm going to keep this to about 30 minutes. Um, and then break it up to another another episode that I'm going to do, you know, later. Um, also, I'd like to kind of break up the monotony of it with, you know, some kind of ooky spooky stuff. Because this stuff, I mean, UFOs and abductions and stuff like that, that, that can get to be, you know, depending on who you are, that can get to be pretty technical and specific, or scientific specific. Specifically scientific. Um, so, yeah, that's it, guys. Um High strangeness, you know? Be aware of it. It's all around us everywhere. Um, you know, the world is a wondrous place. And, and honestly, I think that people are are wonderful and, and should be listened to to some point. Um, you know, don't be taken for a fool. But also just understand that the world is far stranger than anything we could possibly imagine. And reality itself is probably something that's very thin. Um, at this time, I'd like to say thank you to some people who I feel help facilitate this little venture of mine. The first is going to be my employer um, and an amazing comic book publisher and entertainment company called Scout Comics and Entertainment. Um, I've only been working there for a very short time, but they, they, it's, it's wonderful. We have some really incredible stories and, and books and material, um, including really just a favorite from all of us there that work there is a story, a comic book called By the Horns. Um, if you like unicorns and you like uh, beautiful blonde women with swords, you're really going to love By the Horns. So head on over to scoutcomics.com uh, and then check out by the horns and any one of our over 300 titles that we have. Um, and also in a, uh, another little organization that I like to thank uh, from the bottom of my heart, American paranormal magazine, and especially Kim Eaton. Um, thank you for giving me the opportunity to be your intern and then be a supplemental writer for you. Um, this has been incredibly uh, helpful and enlightening and has given me a reason to write something and to be creative at least every once in a while. So thank you once again, guys, and uh, stay strange.